It was the uh, colourful 19th century American author Mark Twain who suggested, and I quote, that there are several good protections against temptation but the surest is cowardice. And there's surely some truth in that. We've probably all sometimes avoided doing things that we really knew we shouldn't because we didn't have the goal to follow through. Most of us also find that one of the most effective answers to temptation is simply to turn away from it. In that sense, we reject the wit of Twain's Irish contemporary the playwright Oscar Wilde, one of whose characters said that the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Not exactly a biblical message. Another of his characters suggested that he could resist everything but temptation. But the promises of the New Testament have proved much more inspiring down through the centuries. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, James writes. God will not let you tempted beyond what you can bear, the Apostle Paul advises in 1 Corinthians 10. But when you are tempted, God will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That was a very important verse for me personally soon after I came to faith. Yet standing up under temptation and staying true to our convictions aren't always easy, are they? I would suspect that there are more than a few here this morning who are struggling in different areas of their lives. And in such circumstances it can be very important to be able to identify our ultimate source or sources of strength. Paul certainly seems keenly aware of this in our reading from Colossians 2 today. And how does he encourage his readers as they face their own temptations to turn away from the orderly lifestyle and firm faith that he has just praised in verse 5? What does he remind them of after he warns them not to be taken captive by what he calls hollow and deceptive philosophy in verse 8, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ? Well, he doesn't try to warn or scare them into doing the right thing that's not generally God's way to use fear. He doesn't even appeal to his reader's sense of moral duty or to their strength of will. What the Apostle basically does is to remind them of their true spiritual identity of who they really are in Christ and in particular of three great benefits that they have received from Christ which mean that they can and should be never the same again. The initials WWJD have been come pretty famous in recent years. WWJD, 
As a matter of interest, can anyone tell me what they stand for? What would Jesus do? Right. And has anyone here had a, like a bracelet or maybe, a, I don't know, some form of clothing with those words on? Well, we used to hand them out at camp. Um, and I've even been known to wear one myself. WWJD, what would Jesus do? It's an important question to try to answer in many different situations, although it's not always as easy to answer as it seems, is it? And a helpful way of looking at our Colossians passage is to say that it actually tells us very clearly, WWJD, what would Jesus do? When it comes to a vital issue that concerns us all, what would Jesus do about all the evil and suffering that we see all around us? What would he do about the mistakes that we make? How would he deal with human sin and its devastating consequences? Well, in a sense, Colossians 2 tells us what he has already done for Christ. Paul teaches, has solved the world's major problem by dying on the cross to save us from the penalty and power of sin and rising from the dead to defeat the powers of darkness once and for all. And in the process, the Apostle stresses three main truths that go right to the heart of our Christian identity of who we are and so can become our ultimate source of strength in life. The great good news that we should be celebrating every Sunday is that Christ has saved us. And because of that great act of salvation, the Apostle says, he has also achieved three crucial things for all who come to faith in him. You may have already noticed, in fact it may have even begun to annoy you, that I like to use alliteration in my sermon headers, the repetition of the same letters. And this morning I'm offering you three L's to take home with you. Three L's. Liberty from sin, life in Christ, and liberation from evil. Liberty from sin, life in in Christ and liberation from evil. So as we consider these vital gifts, let's see what we can learn from them as we go into whatever the week holds. We begin with with liberty, or another word for that is just freedom from sin. Some years back, I remember seeing a video called Return to Paradise about three American guys who got into trouble in Malaysia. It's not a movie that I would necessarily recommend as wholesome Christian viewing, but it raises some serious questions. Some of you may remember seeing. The three tourists were playing around with drugs and one of them was eventually arrested and sentenced to death for trafficking. The other two had already returned to the US by that stage and they heard nothing about their friend until a couple of years later when they were contacted by a woman purporting deceptively, as it happens, 
to be the condemned man's lawyer who put a very demanding proposition to them. The deal was this. If either or both of them would return to Malaysia to serve time in jail, then their friend's death sentence would be commuted. If both went back, they would get three years each. But if only one did, then six years. The choice was up to them. Now, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but there was one particular scene that has always stayed with me. It's just days before their friend is due to be executed when one of the runaways meets up with him in the dirt and squalor of his Malaysian jail cell. The prisoner is tired and cold and sick and quite frankly scared out of his mind. Who wouldn't have been? He feels guilty about causing the return of his friend but also enormously relieved. But what does his friend say? I didn't come back just for you. I didn't come back just for you. There he is, clean and healthy and under no compunction really to do what he does. But he has chosen to suffer and quite possibly die for the good of another. Later, in a Malaysian courtroom, he explains more. I didn't come back here today because I'm courageous, he says. I came back here because I've been careless for a very long time and I'm sick of that feeling. The simple fact is that I'm responsible and I'm also scared, but I'm willing to do whatever's necessary for you to spare my friend's life. I'm willing to do whatever's necessary for you to spare my friend's life. And you know whom I thought of when I saw that scene and heard those words? I thought of Jesus. Of course, Jesus had never been careless and he had always been courageous. So in strictly human terms, he need feel no sense of obligation to give his life and rise again for even one of us. But he did. He didn't have to, to leave the compass of heaven to engage the sin and suffering of our world, but he did. He didn't have to enter into our lives to save us and set us free. But he did so out of love. But he did. And that's the marvellous good news of the Gospel. As Romans 5.8 tells us, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So sinless as he was, Jesus became a living sacrifice for us all. And as a result, Colossians 2 verse 13 tells us, God forgave all our sins. God forgave all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. When Christ was crucified, a mocking sign saying, This is the King of the Jews, was placed above his head. 
And the image that Paul is giving here goes right back to that event. Only instead of that gruesome placard, the apostle pictures the debt that we owed to God for our mistakes. And he pictures it taken away and nailed to the cross. And what does he mean by that? Well, well, God's commandments, God's expectations remain fully binding on us, of course, including the moral law of the Hebrew Scriptures, but Christ has set us free from the consequences of our failures to meet them. Because of Christ's death, we can be forgiven for everything, even the very worst things that we do even when we don't feel that we can. So we have nothing to fear. If we trust in Christ, we can be set free from the penalty of sin, which is ultimately death and judgment. Over time we can even be released from its ongoing power in our lives. That's what we mean when we talk about Jesus saving us and giving us liberty freedom from sin. And there's even more to be thankful for in these marvellous verses because in addition to liberty from sin, because Christ has saved us, God also brings us new life in Christ to come to my second point. And the Apostle's language here couldn't be much stronger. New life in Christ. We've already noted in this sermon series how clearly, how unmistakably Paul asserts the deity as well as the humanity of Christ. And we find this again in verses 9 and 10. For in Christ, Paul writes, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. But the Apostle doesn't make these statements simply as personal confessions of faith. He has very pastoral ends in mind as he seeks to encourage his readers to recognize and so to be who we really are in Christ. It's also because of Jesus' exalted status, of course, that he can achieve all that Paul claims for him in our passage. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh or sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ, the Apostle says in verse 13, right on the front of today's bulletin as well. In other words, when Jesus came as God's Son to live and suffer and die and rise again for our sake, he brought us the opportunity to be born again and to live with God forever. Spiritually, our sins make us dead. But Jesus brings us back to life. So in verse 11, the Apostle uses deeply symbolic language to argue that because of what Jesus has done, his readers have been circumcised. Not physically, as Jewish men were and still are, as a sign of belonging to God, but spiritually, in their hearts, as they have been reborn 
even reclothed in newness of life. Then in verse 12, Paul appeals to the deep significance of baptism as a sign of our spiritual death and resurrection with Christ. Most of you, or maybe I should say many of you, now as I get older, have probably heard of Steve McQueen, a top-billing actor who reportedly led a life as tough as the one he portrayed on screen. You may have seen some of his movies like Bullet or The Great Escape. Success filled his life until alcohol and a failed marriage left him empty. In his despair, McQueen attended a crusade led by one of Billy Graham's associates and when he made a profession of faith he requested an opportunity to speak with Billy Graham personally. A connecting flight in Los Angeles allowed them to spend a couple of hours in the actor's limousine and Graham shared numerous Bible stories and verses in his quest to give him spiritual hope and confidence. McQueen struggled with one key problem and it troubles many people. He struggled with the thought of God giving eternal life to a man who had such a checkered past, who had done what he had. How could he live forever with all that he had done? He only found the assurance that he was looking for when he read in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 about the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. He requested something to write the verse down. But Graham gave McQueen his Bible instead. The actor later died in Mexico, but he was found on his deathbed with his Bible open. And what had he been reportedly reading? His finger was said to be on the same page as Titus 1 verse 2. The hope of eternal life. That's what Jesus has given us all by making it possible for us to be born again when we come to faith in Christ. A new life that will literally last forever and there's even more because in saving us Jesus has achieved a third invaluable treasure for us. The third and final L that I want to leave with you today, which is liberation from sin. Liberation from evil. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, verse 15 says, he, that is Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now the powers and authorities that Paul is talking about seem to be those of darkness, of the devil and all his demons. And the picture the Apostle gives us shows us Christ's complete victory over them. The Greek word for triumphing here is the same used of victorious generals on their return home 
from a winning battle campaign when they led captive prisoners in triumphal procession through the streets. So what Paul is saying is that when Christ died and rose again, he totally defeated all the forces of evil in our world once and for all. So it may not always seem that way, especially after a week like this, when we've had to think about a possible war in North Korea, or we've just witnessed the terrible racist attacks in Charlottesville, Virginia yesterday. Although it may not always seem like it, while he may rage and rant like crazy, the devil is already a defeated foe. In an article for Christianity Today a few years back, Carolyn Ahrens offered a powerful illustration that may help us grasp our current situation in light of Christ's victory. She wrote about a missions Sunday at her childhood church when missionaries on furlough brought special reports in place of a sermon. And she told of one visit that she'd never forgotten because of a particular story they told. And I quote, The missionaries in question were a married couple stationed in what appeared to be a particularly steamy jungle, she wrote. One day, they told us, an enormous snake, much longer than a man, slithered its way right through their front door and into the kitchen of their simple home. Terrified, they ran outside and searched frantically for a local who might know what to do. A machete-wielding neighbour came to the rescue, calmly marching into their house and taking off the snake's head with one clean chop. The neighbour re-emerged triumphant and assured the missionaries that the reptile had been defeated, but there was a catch, he warned. It was going to take a while for the snake to realise it was dead. So for the next several hours, the missionaries were forced to wait outside while this snake thrashed about, smashing furniture, flailing against walls and windows, wreaking havoc until its body finally understood that it no longer had a head. Sweating in the heat, they felt frustrated and a little sickened, but also grateful that this rampage wouldn't last forever. Then at some point in their waiting, their waiting, they had a mutual epiphany, a revelation. Do you see it? Aaron's remembered the missionary asking. Satan is a lot like that big old snake. He's already been defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. In the meantime, he's going to do some damage, but never forget that he's a goner. Never forget that he's a goner. The story still haunts me, Arendt concluded, because I have come to believe that it's an accurate picture of the universe. We are in the thrashing time. A season 
characterized by our pervasive capacity to do violence to each other and ourselves. The temptation is to despair. We have to remember though, that it won't last forever. Jesus has already crushed the serpent's head. Jesus has already crushed the serpent's head. What a powerful line that is. So while we may have to wait until the end of the world as we know it before the powers of darkness vanish altogether, Jesus has already won the decisive battle and when we know and trust Christ to save us, we can already enjoy a liberation from evil and the kind of life that would be quite impossible otherwise. So there we have them. Three L's. Three vital truths all found in just nine verses from Colossians chapter 2. What would Jesus do about the problems of sin and evil in our world? In fact, what has he already done in his death and resurrection? He has made it possible for all who come to faith in Christ to enjoy true and lasting liberty as we are set free from the penalty and power of sin. He has given us new and eternal life in him as we are born again spiritually. Last but not least, we can share in Christ's victory over the powers of darkness and one day we shall know the benefits of that in full. These are just some of the amazing gifts that we receive through faith in Christ when we are saved by Him. And they can totally transform how we see ourselves as we get to grips with who we really are and whom God has made us to be in Christ. If we take these truths as seriously as they deserve, they can also, I believe, be an enormous source of strength as we seek to steer clear of temptation and to live the kind of lives that God expects of us. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Jesus has crushed the serpent's head and we can all enjoy the benefits of his marvellous salvation today and every other day of our lives. Let's bow our heads.